Ecclesiastes chapter 7, beginning in verse 1, I'll read to verse 12. A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is the house of mourning, or is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, excuse me, so is the laughter of the fools, this also is vanity. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the bosom of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun, for the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Thus far, the reading of God's word, let me pray now for the blessing of the preaching of it. Lord, grant to us all this evening a wisdom that comes by hearing and doing that which we find in your word. Lord, may we be a people conformed and transformed by your word, not hard or stubborn, but to see things as they are, as you have made them, and to be hungry to attain the blessed wealth that wisdom is. We pray all of this in your name. Amen. This evening we continue in this series from this, at times, seemingly cryptic book of wisdom. It's in part somewhat cryptic because we have lost the vocabulary of reality in the age in which we live. Uh, One of the lectures that I give in my apologetics class uh, to the seniors at Greyfriars is the difference between science and alchemy. Science is observing and telling things as they are. Alchemy is made-up stuff. Uh, Some of you are most familiar with the principle of alchemy, and that is how for many centuries men have sought to turn lead into gold. I wish such a thing was possible because we'd already have a new parking lot, right? It'd be easy. Easy is not necessarily better. Um, When I say alchemy, I don't mean just transforming lead into gold. I mean... Um, naming something that it can never be, naming a man a woman, and wishfully thinking that it can be so, we live in a very deluded age, is my point. We live in an age where we have forgotten how to name, and we make things eminently complex, and therefore we despair. In fact, one of the things that we are taught, oftentimes in the West, is that we can, through science, or whatever you want to call that, or through healthcare, 
assure ourselves a long, prosperous, and healthy life. And so when the Lord in his providence drops a bomb that is the size of, well, something microscopic into the culture of the West or just modern world, we don't know how to respond. And our preeminent concern is what we say, at least. Safety. We want to be safe. Well, safe from what? The thing that we fear most, which is what? Death. But why fear death? Paul himself, uh, uh, not complains, expresses to live as Christ and to die as gain. What he is saying is to live as Christ and to die as more of Christ. And can you imagine the meeting that we will all have when we will be unshackled from our fleshly bodies and the sin that hangs so tightly and we will be released and free from that and we see Christ and we worship him unconstrained by sin? What a day that will be. You have or never would meet a saint if he were or she were to come back from death and go, whoa, it's better here. They would say, free at last, free at last. Death is for many, is for many a great impediment to joy, a great impediment to living freely, but not so the saint, or at least we ought not to be that way. And so as Solomon is wishing to impart Rules for how to live, a a way to understand the life that we are living now, not only as creatures, but as creatures under the fall, and we are endeavoring to live a good life, a successful life, and to have a good name. If we wish to be righteous, we must not shy away from those places where death is present. Parents, I'm telling you, when you go visit your friend in the hospital, take your children. Don't shield them from these things. In fact, right now, there are a lot of children in the Ukraine who are living, learning a very difficult and in some ways blessed lesson. And that is, death comes for us all. It may be swift, it may be slow, we may be old, we may be young. But as Solomon has already said, men and beasts go to the same place. We go to the grave, we go to Sheol. That place where our bodies rot even in the ground. And so how are we, as those who are seeking to be wise, how are we to grow in that wisdom, knowing that wisdom itself is wealthy? It is wealth. And so I titled the sermon, I believe, Go Where You Grow. It sounds a bit cliche. But where are we to be if we wish to grow in wisdom. Well, Solomon has much to say about that. Let's, well, let me tell you my first two points. First, wisdom and sorrow, wisdom and sorrow, and then second, the protection of wisdom, the protection of wisdom. So let's look at the first point, wisdom and sorrow. In verses one through five, we read, beginning, a good name is better than precious ointment and the day of death and the day of birth. That sounds odd, doesn't it? Nobody sets out balloons on their mailbox when someone in their family has died, right? We celebrate, and rightly so, and we are anticipating, even in our congregation, the birth of two covenant children, one pretty soon and another coming up. 
Those days are wonderful. They are they are manifestation of God's covenant promises that we continue to have children. It is a gift. It is a blessing. But even more than this, when you go to the place where we remember the lives of those whom we have lost. Verse 2, he builds upon this theme. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Better are the things that nurture holy fear. Better are the places where you remember. No one is listening to wedding homilies. Everyone is listening to funeral homilies. That's the difference. Why? Because in the midst of grief, people want to hear hope. And when you're in a, in a, in a, in a wedding ceremony and the preacher is up there giving a homily, they're just doing what? Looking forward to the reception. When do we get to eat? <laughs> we are those who ought to understand that there is something to be learned when we lay to heart the end. The end of all men, better the things that nurture holy fear. Now, the scriptures, time and again, give us a very proper understanding of the length of our lives. First Peter 1, all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord remains forever. You probably hear this at funerals. Job chapter 14 Speaking of man, he comes out like a flower and withers. He flees like a shadow and continues not. Psalm 102, 11, my days are like an evening shadow. I wither away like grass. Psalm 103, as for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. James 1, and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. Your life is like what? Grass. It's here and it's gone. These beautiful blossoms that will begin to spring will come and they will go. And we look at them and we rarely think of ourselves, don't we? We don't think about the mist and vapor, the vanity, the shortness that is human life. Let me put a very fine point on it. You don't start thinking about your legacy, your life, your decisions until you hear words like these you have cancer. And then all of a sudden, what do you do? I've got to get my life together. I've got to prepare. I've got to think about the end of my life. Well, what makes that moment after the news any different from the moment before the news? Is death not coming prior? Is that the only thing that makes a difference? Well, for many of us, it is. If you wish to live with a good name, which is the appeal at the beginning of this section, a good name is better than precious ointment, then Solomon is saying this, you will seek after wisdom as the ultimate wealth that life has to offer. And the way in which your heart will be nurtured and encouraged to pursue wisdom is if you remember how short your life truly is. 
and to invest in those things that really matter. So let's say someone comes to you and says, you have six weeks to live. What are you going to do? The most important things, the bucket list, if you can. Now, the bucket list may not be, all right, I'm going to go to Europe. It'd have a hard time with that anyway. It's difficult to travel right now. But you would spend your days with those people who are most important. You'd probably quit your job, which you ought not to go out and do. That's not the exhortation. But you would focus on those things that matter. Why not do this every day? I don't mean quit your job. I mean live in such a way that you are not promised tomorrow. Are we not exhorted elsewhere in Scripture? To live for the day? Tomorrow's got enough worries. Live for the day. To live as those whose lives will one day come to an end. The saints of God are to have an awareness, a true knowledge of who they are and that their lives are here and then they are gone. And the way in which we are nurtured on this reality is that we do not flee from those reminders that our lives are temporary. Look at verse 3. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. Now, we will look at a contrast in a moment. But what assists a man in righteousness, in pursuing those things that are most essential, is a personal awareness of death. And I don't mean a friend's death or a family member's death. I mean your own death. And many of the great Renaissance writers and thinkers would often place a human skull on their desk. Not a severed head, a skull. <laughs> and that skull would sit on their desk and they would look at it and it would remind them of what? That's going to be them one day. I hope that isn't true of me. If I'm buried, don't dig me up. Don't put my skull on anybody's desk. But that sat there in order to remind them to think in light of eternity that their lives are very short and one day they will have to answer to the Lord for the way they lived. Ecclesiastes is a book about how we are to think of life. And what Solomon does is he doesn't leave out the messy bits. He leaves them in. He puts them right there. And what he is saying in verse 4 is, if you wish to be wise, your heart must never be far from mourning. I remember I was told by one of my seminary professors that before a man ever becomes a minister of the gospel, one of the things he ought to do is see a person die. Not a dead person. A living person become a dead person. That in the very midst of those final moments, you see what it is like to be breathing and then to no longer breathe. And the gravity of that moment is to grip the minister so that every time he steps into the pulpit, as Richard Baxter would say, he preaches as a dying man to dying men. But not us, right? We figured it out. We can stave it off. We can push it back. We can, not to be too relevant, vaccinate ourselves from all the danger of the world. I'm speaking in a metaphor, sort of, right? We can push it away. 
We can kick it outside the door. There is no room for that kind of talk in this house. We're only going to think happy thoughts. But what is the problem with that? Death isn't outside the door. It's in your body. It's in your DNA. And everything about your body reminds you as you get older, it all falls apart. It's corrupted. It's temporary. It is vain. And so the way of wisdom is this. It is not to be morbid. It is to have joy. It is to be courageous. It is to laugh in the face of death, even itself. But not as the fool laughs. And that's where the contrast will come in a moment. But the wise will contemplate their end. And they will live in light of the fact that their lives are here and then they are gone and they are to take advantage. They are to make the most of the time that is given to them. Lay it up to heart. Not just death, the death of those who are remote, but your own death. Contemplate your end. Now, how do we do this? Well, we have a biblical anthropology. That is a doctrine of man, a biblical understanding of what men are for. And the Bible makes it very clear. You're here and you're gone. This is the proper telos. Now, it's T-E-L-O-S. Telos refers to order, to purpose, to design. The problem with sinful men is they seek to reject and suppress a biblical telos, a biblical order, biblical teaching as it relates to men. We are to understand that we are made in the image of God, we are made by God, we are made for God, and that the days of our lives are to be spent glorying and delighting in him. Now, oftentimes what people think is, well, if I'm going to live, I'm going to live to the life to the fullest, right? It's the Instagram life. Every moment of my waking life is to be something worthy of recording. And that's not what Solomon is saying. There are many people whose lives you'll never know. They're not worthy of being recorded. They will never make it on television. They will never make it on social media. Their lives are short. Their lives are tough. Their lives at times are downright miserable. And already Solomon has taught us what to expect. That in light of the poor oppressing the rich, I mean the rich oppressing the poor, the powerful oppressing the weak, there is great injustice on earth. We don't hide from any of these things. And in fact, oftentimes it seems that the great, it seems that the great injustice of all of life is that death comes for us. And so this is how the wicked then respond. And this brings me to my second point, verse six. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. Now, the laughter of the righteous and the laughter of the fool is different in this way. The laughter of the righteous is the flourishing fruit of a life that is tied to Christ and the hope and the confidence and the promise of eternity. It is the fruit 
of confidence in Christ. The laughter of the fools is a rejection of what is true with laughter. It is drug. It is food. It is drink. It is drinking deeply the stuff of this earth in an attempt to distract oneself from the reality of death. And what does Solomon say that laughter is like? Have you ever burned brush? It's the stuff you burn to get the fire started, and it burns up like that. The laughter of the fool is no remedy for the sickness of man. It is to put your fingers in your ears and close your eyes and sort of block out reality. They think it is the means of coping, but it is no successful coping mechanism. And so when Solomon says wisdom lays it to heart, he wants you and he wants me to look at death and to see it for what it is. It is worth mourning, but it is to mourn through the lens of a risen and reigning Messiah. 1 Corinthians 15. Through Christ, death has died. The wicked don't know this principle. They don't believe death is no longer our mortal enemy. For the sting of death is removed. The sting of death is sin. Christ has done away with that in the life of the believer. So we can look at death and we can be mournful about it. We can discern the end of our days and we are not overwhelmed by it. We hate it. We miss those who are dead. We don't want to die. But we do not fear it, and we do not respond to it by ignoring its existence. We live in light of it. We look at it in the face and we say, what can it do to me? And so the madness of folly is that laughter is all there is. In fact, look at how the wicked are tossed to and fro by the reality of death. First... They laugh at it, but it is no real confidence. Verse 7, surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to anger, for anger lodges in the bosom of fools. Say not, Why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. You see, the wicked beg, borrow, and steal. They lie to themselves. They grow angry because they cannot control the providence of God. And the great reminder that they are not Lord of their lives is that their lives are gone. In a moment, they're taken away. There is great madness in folly. The wicked seek to laugh at death, but their laughter is stupid and it is foolish, for their laughter is not tied to hope and trust in God. It's a tactic. It's a distraction. It's like everything else. They seek to emotionally respond without any solid anchor for their souls. The Christian can look. And laugh in the face of danger. Why? Because they see through the lens of the cross. 
and they see that Christ has conquered death, and therefore, whatever happens to me, man can do anything to me. God can in his providence bring great hardship, but in Christ, my soul rests secure. That is true laughter. The laughter of the wicked is maniacal. It's crazy. It's out of control, for it is not grounded in the hope of the resurrection. They use it as a defense, as a weapon to shut their eyes and stop up their ears. It is only good laughter when it is the fruit of confidence in Christ and not suppression and exchange of the truth that they know but cannot escape. And it keeps them from learning. And they're driven to madness. They cannot look at death and be content or hopeful. So what do they do? I mean, have you seen the plastic surgery that some of these people get? Who are they fooling? You know who they're fooling? Themselves. You can't look like a teenager again in your 60s. I'm sorry. It's just not possible. And even if you somehow manage to look like a teenager, guess what? Your heart is still 60. And so are your bones and all of your organs. It is amazing how content we are with superficial lives. And that is the rest of the wicked. They are resting in superficial things. And so they grow angry. That anger lodges in their hearts. And then they say, verse 10, why were the former days better than these? Have you heard this? Well, back in my day, yes, back in your day, people still killed each other. Nations still went to war with other nations. In the days of Israel, the pagan tribes would take their children and they would offer them to unknown gods. There are no days better than our days. In fact, in many ways, our days are better than their days. Or do you think that you can do your own dental work? When was the last time you got an antibiotic? I would imagine many of you quite recently. They are putting their hope in something that doesn't exist. And they're just sort of casting their anchor. They're building their house on sand. They're digging empty cisterns that cannot hold water. And how quickly their laughter turns to anger. Why? Because they are surrounded on every front by the reality that their lives are mist and vapor and they cannot escape it. And they are very unhappy about it. Why can't it be like when I was younger? It is not wisdom that asks this question. In fact, wisdom looks to the future, and this is what wisdom says. Prepare yourself for the judgment. For it is appointed unto man once to die, and then the judgment. It isn't just death. In fact, it isn't really death we fear. What is it? Dying not ready. Dying having left things undone. Dying having committed sins that we are ashamed of. Jonathan Edwards, in a series of resolutions, speaks in such a way that he always lives in light of the coming of Christ Jesus, whether it's death or the second coming. And one of those resolutions reads something like, I am resolved such that I would not do anything 
that I would be embarrassed to have done if it were committed at the very moment of Christ's return and he found me doing it. Woo, that'll wake you up, won't it? When that trumpet sounds, how will the Lord find me? Or what if I'm doing something and all of a sudden, my heart gives out? Where will men find me? How embarrassing would that moment be? We are to live in light of our coming end. And the wicked are not prepared. So what do they do? They go, (laughs) and that's the substance of their laughter. And they're all looking at each other, and they're all trying to laugh at the same joke. And there's no escaping it. There is no escape. But look at verse 11. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. The wicked do not see. They deceive themselves and they live in such a fashion that they try to laugh or grow angry at providence. What wisdom does is it keeps us from wasting our lives by lying to ourselves about what life is really about. Wisdom that comes from submission, submission to the word of God. Wisdom that comes from knowing your end and not being afraid of it, but rejoicing in the midst of it. I'm not saying walk around happy for the day of your death, but prepared. Now, how do you prepare for the day of your death? By trusting in Christ's righteousness and by living a life of devotion to him and surrender to his word. We don't reject sorrow. We put sorrow in its context, in the context of the resurrection. And so we can embrace death. We can go to dangerous places like these missionaries that refuse to leave Ukraine. Why? Or the 80-something-year-old man I heard of recently that said, I don't care if I go to church and catch COVID. I'd rather die than be absent from the house of God. And the world looks at you and say, well, that's dumb. And I'm saying, what else is there? Tell me. Tell me what other place is there to go and die that's better than that. Name it. Your house. Can you imagine if you died at Panther Stadium on a Sunday? Whoops. (laughs) Talk about embarrassing. And the Lord goes, well, why were you there eating that corn dog (laughs) that you choked on? It keeps us from wasting our lives. We don't shut our eyes and laugh maniacally. We open our eyes and we see it for what it is and we say, thank the Lord, I am in Christ Jesus. In fact, this is how Jesus tells us to live our lives. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Do not live as though the greatest wealth you can attain is the wealth of this world. Wisdom is the anchor for your soul's handling of all that is thrown at you. That is how it is like money. Look at this, verse 12. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money or wealth. 
And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Now, when he says wisdom is like money, he's not talking about cash. He's talking about wealth. It is the way that you'll shore up your future against disaster. You don't know what's coming, but you know what? If I have a little bit in savings, I'm a little more prepared. That's a great way to think. If I have a little bit in savings, I can go into the future thinking, okay, I'm a little better off than if I had nothing. Wisdom is the wealth of heaven that we are to seek here on earth so that we might be prepared for whatever providence God brings. It is greater than all worldly wealth because it comes from heaven. It comes from God himself. It comes through his word, and it is the means by which we prepare for the hardship of life. And so as you labor to put money in the bank here on earth, I want you to think, To what degree am I depositing wisdom into my heart? How am I preparing myself, shoring up my soul from disaster? Because what happens if something worse afflicts us than a virus? What if it is a nation? What if it is wicked men? What if it is the persecution, the forbidding of people to worship together? What if the world comes to us and says, you can choose Christ or you can choose Caesar? What will you say? Will you laugh and pretend as though it is not a choice? Will you say, man, back in my day, no. Maybe your day, but you know what has happening to people in the 40s? None of you are that old, maybe close to it, but somewhere, somewhere in the world, at some time, there are people who are suffering. It is never wise to say, well, back in my day. How do you get it then? How do you get this wisdom that the Bible calls wealth? This thing that is an advantage. It is very simple. This is the end of the matter, right? Fear God and keep his commands. You gain wisdom the way you gain all wealth. You don't inherit it from your parents. It's not a silver spoon you're born with in your mouth. It is something you must labor for. Now, you can receive it from your parents as they teach you, but you must strive to make it your own. It doesn't come to you automatically. It doesn't show up in your bank account as some sort of automatic deposit. The reason why many of us don't have wisdom is because we have to work for it. That doesn't sound right, does it? How can that be? It should just come to me, right? We entitled Western Christians. No, it comes by faithful devotion to the very source of where wisdom comes from. It comes to us from God by the Spirit through the reading, the preaching, the teaching of his word. I had an elder tell me this one time. As I was a seminary student and I was interning in an OPC church, he could tell two things. Number one, I like to talk. Number two, I relied on my gift to talk instead of really working hard to prepare sermons. I don't know how he knew this because I thought I hid it well. I guess I didn't hide it that well. 
And this is the advice that he gave me, and I will never forget it, and it cuts me to the heart. Stay on the rock until it lends its jewel. You must mine for wisdom. I don't mean Minecraft mining, where you just click, 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 click on a mouse button, (laughs) and it just comes to you. You must work hard for it. You must stay on the rock, and you must chisel away until it lends its jewel. You must seek after it. You must search after it. You must go to the source. You must say to God's providence, Lord, whatever you have for me, I will endure with patience and joy. And lo and behold, over time, even in the midst of suffering, and especially in the midst of suffering, what you will gain is a priceless treasure. It is the wealth that equips you to handle whatever life has to offer. Go to those places of discomfort. Go to those places that teach you humility. Go to those places where you learn that death is coming and there is no greater prize than to know how God thinks and what he says. It's here. What Solomon wants people to understand is we must be people whose lives are governed by God's revelation. Go to the source where we encounter the author of wisdom, the word of God, open it and seek it and say to yourself, I will not stop until I have it. The hard part, young people, is this. You may do it for a little while and go, this is just too hard. And then you replace true wisdom for what you think is a sort of lighthearted disposition. But then when life really comes, you can't handle it. And you just go, can't take it anymore. You know what I mean? You feel like life's out of control. Out of your control. Christ never feels that way. He never says, Oh, I got all these people. What are they doing? I don't know how to know. He is in control. He's governed every single one of our days. And he has put that little thing in your life to make you go, I don't know what to do. So that you will learn wisdom. So that you may contemplate a life well lived. Now, how do you know what wisdom is? You look to Christ. How do you know who or what is wise? Well, they look like Christ. Seek after that wisdom, and you will get great wealth. Let's pray. Lord our God, we ask.